1: It's Saturday, January the 18th and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today we wanted to look at the record of the outgoing government. It would be impossible of course to cover all the areas which the government is responsible for but we did want to focus in on some of the key areas, uh, namely health, housing and homelessness, education and the economy. And we asked our specialist journalists in each of those fields to come in and give us a report on how the 2016 programme for government uh, was achieved in terms of some of those areas or not achieved indeed in others. First up is our health editor, Paul Cullen. Paul, I think when we look at the health track record of this government, we have to go back to the preceding Fine led
2: government in 2011. Sure. I mean, health is a big ship and big ships take time to turn around. So you need to go back to almost a decade ago when Enda Kenny became Taoiseach. Fine Gael had a big plan and in fact health uh, was a big um, influence on uh, Kenny getting elected because they had a big plan for uni- universal health insurance. Unfortunately, it proved unimplementable. It was a bit of a disaster. So effectively, for two or three years, they went backwards uh, in terms of overall planning in the health service. And it wasn't until Leo Varadkar came in as Minister for Health that the plan was rightly abandoned.
1: And can I just ask, how damaging was that? Because obviously they were coming in in 2011 faced with really serious fiscal difficulties, so there wasn't any money around to be even putting band-aids on things at that point. And then their big plan fell apart. Did that mean that everything just stopped?
2: Yeah, I mean, you do have to be f- fair to them and say the context was it was post-bust, there wasn't much money around, there were cutbacks still to be made, health is a huge spender. They were under pressure from the Troika to do that, so the, and they did that. It was a, it did allow us piece, a bit of space and time to plan for how do we structure our health service, and it was wasted time because if you if you pedal forward to the present, we're still talking about big plans now, it's slow care, and it's got more consensus, but a decade on, we... It hasn't really got off our space.
1: And then I suppose apart from the big plans, there's always these kind of key questions around waiting lists, uh, people on trolleys, those kinds of numbers. Was there much impact on those in the first Fine Gael term?
2: Yeah, there was actually. James Riley, to, to his credit, um, especially considered uh, in, in context with his two successors, he managed to get some of the waiting lists down. But he did that by outsourcing a lot of the work to the private sector. So when that money ran out, the special funding, the waiting list just came back. And uh, so it was just a short term uh, impact. And it's uh, worth remembering for the present day because there is some improvement in waiting lists at the moment. But again, I think it's short term unless money is applied efficiently and in a long term way. One of the interesting things about this election is that both the leaders of the two main parties are
1: former ministers for health. Um, how do you rate Leo Varadkar's term as minister for health?
2: It wasn't great, to be honest with you. He was there less than two years from 2014 to 2016. He- For half of that, he looked as though he wanted to move on. It was a time when uh, funding was improving and he got extra funding for the health service. He was very much motivated by headline initiatives such as free GP care for under six. Quite unpopular with with GPs themselves, but uh, played well with the public. And that's been followed since. Um, Simon Harris has been there for three years now. Mm. Um, He's had to struggle with rising trolley numbers, as we know, um, rising Um, waiting lists, massive waiting lists. He scored a few uh, goals as well, uh, particularly in the Liberal agenda, you know, um, in terms of improving vaccination rates and introducing a new service, which is rare enough in itself in the form of abortion after the abortion law was changed. And that was introduced uh, with relatively little fuss.
1: But he was still struggling with those core issues of the, the question of where is the big plan and is it implementable?
2: And then the problems on the ground with trolleys and
1: a uh, and and all those.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you hear during this election campaign that we have a third world health system and so on like that, uh, and it's failed, um, it's not true, really. A lot of the health service does work. The big issue is access. How do you get in and get um, treated by a doctor, whether you're an emergency patient uh, coming out of an ambulance or whether you're on a waiting list? and uh, successive politicians have grappled with that unsuccessfully and they ha- there is a recognition at least at present that there is need for wider structural reform and there is a plan in the form of into care which does have cross party uh, support um, the problem is I don't feel it's adequately costed so we don't really know how much it's going to cost and you have to remember over the period that Finnegade have been in power an extra 4 billion or so has been added to the budget which is great but we've precious little to show for it
1: so in the sense of it not being adequately costed, does that bring us back to where we were in 2011 when Finnegan had a universal health care proposal that wasn't properly costed or thought through either?
2: Yeah, th- that was quite contentious at the time. So in this election, I think you won't hear much in the way of alternative visions for the health service. The pressure from staff and from when people in the health sector is that we need more resources. Now, there's a bit of a split there because we recognise now uh, that we need to do more, provide more health in the community in primary care. But at the same time, the big hospitals are the ones with the overcrowding, and they're the ones shouting loudest for the funding. So any incoming government is going to have to face this. Do they divert funds to the community, to primary care, where it's supposedly best used? Mm -hmm. Or do they listen to those who are shouting loudest and provide more funding to the hospitals which are in a a dire state?
1: Can I ask you something broader about health? Because clearly we have specific problems quite quite serious ones, although other parts of the health service work quite well. But health seems to be a problem in most developed Western countries and perhaps across the world. So we look across the water, the NHS is the first item on the political agenda in the UK. We look at the United States and access to health care is the first item on the political agenda. So is this just a reality of where we are in our developed economies, the challenges that providing universal healthcare? health
2: care? Absolutely, yeah. As you say, I mean the, the NHS is just coming through its worst winter in years uh, in terms of its form of overcrowding, albeit minor compared to ours, um, the Americans realized long ago that health could swallow the entire u s federal budget if it wasn't controlled the The thing is that the uh, demand for health services is massive and increasing all the time. The cost of providing those services with new technologies, new drugs is uh, even exponentially greater, so some form of rationing and, and prioritizing has to be applied, and that's what we 've struggled with because we 've Uh, inherited a system which is uh, unusual, let's say, in form of the public-private mix. We've inherited big old hospitals and big old public nursing homes and uh, we've been slow to modernise and to work out the most efficient way of allocating uh, health resources in the fairest possible way.
1: When you say we're slow to modernise, is that because something is is often pointed to is the idea of vested interests, which are very slow to move if they're going to move at all?
2: Yeah, I think it is. And I think vested interest is a loaded term. But um, certainly, as a journalist who's writing this area, I mean, all the appeals come across my desk. And I realise if if everybody was to get what they wanted in health, um, there would be nothing left in the kitty, you know, really. So and there has to be some sort of recognition that um, those who need health... Uh, services the most should should be prioritised. And we haven't kind of really done that. There is a plan, as I say, and it does give hope, but it's uh, it's a work in progress.
1: Fine, Paul, can I ask you, is health actually a general election issue? In other words, is it a factor, and do you think, that's going to cause people to vote one way or the other?
2: Well, I think if you ask anybody, and you've seen the vox box in the early part of the sure. campaign, people say, what do I care about? Health and homelessness, uh, or health and housing. They mention that. But I think you need to drill down and ask further questions. In what way do they care about health? And I think it's something of a nil old draw because, don't forget, we've talked about Simon Harris, we've talked about uh, Lever Adker, but Micheál Martin, of course, is the former Minister for Health, again with something of a chequered history in in the portfolio a long time ago. Um, so if if health does play a role in this campaign. My feeling is that it will play a role in specific local circumstances. Look at the hospital in Limerick, look at the appalling state, there's a demonstration planned there on the 1st of February. Look at uh, the fact that Michael from the doctor from Clare, is not standing anymore. Will another doctor step up to the plate and campaign for GP services in rural areas. Look at the rouse about hospitals down in Waterford. I think in all of those areas, you're going to see local campaigns and perhaps they might result in a hospital type candidate that we've seen in the past. Paul, thanks for that.
1: Of course, health has been one of the most intractable problems facing this country for many, many years. A more recent problem, but one that appears just as intractable, is the connecting issues of housing and homelessness. Our social affairs correspondent Kitty Holland is with us. Kitty, what promises were made in 2016 in this area?
3: Well, um, as we know, it came to power in May 2016, and we were already um, at least a year, if not 18 months, into the beginning of this housing crisis and the, the homelessness crisis, which really began to pick up in a big way towards the end of 2014 and Alan Kelly had made several um, commitments and promises but the big um, document that was published in July 2016, some months after they came came into power, was the Rebuilding Ireland document and on homelessness, I suppose the big promise that we all remember being made and which was so spectacularly failed um, was to end the use of hotels for homeless families by um, by the end of the year or certainly by the middle of the following year mm. and that was as we know spectacularly not met because the number of families in hotels has continued to rise um, since then yeah. um, there was also promises about providing 50,000 new social housing units in the um, time frame of the plan which is to run until 2021 the rebuilding Ireland plan and that um 87,000 families would have housing solutions provided um, and I say housing solutions because that is the term that is used by the government This is very
1: slippery language <clears> isn't it? Sometimes? Very slippery
3: language mm. and it's hard sometimes, I mean I've been writing about this for, you know throughout this crisis and sometimes it is hard to discern what exactly is being said and, and what is actually being meant because the government talks about providing um, social housing units mm. um, and, we th- and most people would understand that to mean that they're going to build social housing.
1: A house or an apartment.
3: Whereas the vast majority of the social housing units that are being provided or social housing solutions that are being provided are actually in the private rented sector. And and that
1: brings us to HAP, which is a really important element of this whole story, I think, and sometimes underappreciated, both in terms of I think I, certainly in my view I'd say massaging the figures about how much social social housing or affordable housing is available and also because the effect it has on, on everybody putting everybody into this private rented yeah. accommodation paid for by the state
3: I mean HAP was brought in by Alan Kelly his predecessor and it was a recognition I suppose that um, housing support from the government was actually a long term Support for a lot of households, rent supplement, which is replaced still replacing, um, it was brought in as a short-term housing benefit. H- HAP is now, I suppose, works a lot better in some ways for families in that they can work while they're on it. There's a level of discretion, I suppose, from the local authority they can top up the HAP a bit and um, and work a bit with landlords. And it's a it's a relationship between the local authority and the landlord. But it's a pri- it's in the private rented sector. There's very little rent secu- security of tenure. So they
1: could. Find themselves in the same situation twelve or eighteen months down yeah. the line again.
3: And the other issue about HAP is that if you move from, on from rent supplement, where you are on the house, you are on the housing waiting list, and you are on rent supplement. If you transfer onto HAP, which most people are being compelled to do across the country now, you are taken off the housing list. Yeah. So the government can say now that the number of people on the house, the number of households on the housing waiting list, has gone down by by twenty thousand. But the number of people in need of social housing has not reduced by 20,000 because they've, it's, it's another mass massaging of the so figures. So
1: we know this is an in- intensely political issue and that you know different political parties have different views on what the mm-hmm. solution is. And there's been much criticism, huge amounts of criticism of Owen Murphy and the Fine Gael government's mm-hmm. approach to it, a criticism that they're very ideological. Um, but in terms of the actual numbers, in as much as we can get to them, how many actual social housing units did this government commit to providing and how many has it provided? Not HAP, actual houses and homes.
3: Yeah, I mean, during the course of rebuilding Ireland, which is to run until 2021, they said they would provide about 50,000 social housing units. They said in all, they would provide well over 100,000 social housing solutions, but that includes HAP. Mm -hmm. But they said they provide about 47,000 social housing units. So what they have provided, according to their own figures up to the end of the third quarter last year, is 25,000 social housing units. And they are Coming through local authority new build. Now, since 2016, they have built 4,266 social housing units by local authorities. Over
1: a three to four year period? Yeah.
3: Um, there's been about 3,000 have come from approved housing bodies. About 2,000 have come through Part 5. They have returned nearly 5,000 local authority houses that were void back into use. And they have acquired and bought about eight or 9,000 units of housing. So, And they have leased as well another 3,000. So in all, it's about 25,000. Okay, so and some of
1: those numbers are quite legitimate. For example, housing associations are... Mm-hmm a very all, good way all, of providing all, social housing, housing. They're all housing
3: units, they're all owned by the state or housing bodies, mm-hmm. they're all give good security of tenure um, it's 25,000 they are going to have to come up with about another 25 to 20 Twenty-two to twenty-five thousand by the end of next year. So I don't know how they're going to achieve that. Seems that. unlikely, all right. Seems does seem unlikely. But when you look at the number of people who have been, which they are calling housing solutions, who have been, um, who are in HAP, um, that's about sixty-seven thousand. Okay, so, so HAP, is the, HAP is
1: doing the heavy lifting from the point it's of view. It's doing of the heavy lifting,
3: and it's projected to cost the state about a billion a year by next year. So this is hugely expensive. It's not providing security of tenure. But I suppose you know the, the government would argue back that it, these are people who are being supported in their housing need by the state and they're all in homes, um, however secure or insecure the majority of them are.
1: Now, the part of this which is, I suppose, the most pointed part of this, obviously, is people who are actually homeless, yeah. uh, who are in some form of, you know, hotel short term accommodation, these hubs which have been set up, or indeed who are on the streets and, you know, this... The terrible story this week on the on the, on the Grand Canal, you know, illustrates the vulnerability of people yeah. in a particularly awful way. And what are the numbers on that in terms of the the targets and what's been achieved?
3: Well um when they came to power in 2016 um, and i suppose for me that this is the, you know the most vulnerable are the children in homelessness and it's a figure i o- often hone in on because i think it's the most unforgivable type of homelessness um that we or sector you know that shouldn't be homeless and the devastation it's causing to causing to young lives when they came to power in 2016 and this was already a really shocking figure 2177 um, homeless children in in the country that's children in emergency accommodation this doesn't count the children who are in overcrowded conditions, who are in domestic refuges, domestic violence refuges or children who are stuck in direct provision centres so in emergency accommodation 2,177 the latest figures we have for November last year are 3,752 children homeless, and the numbers of adults in Dublin um, have gone up from 1,549 in May 2016—that's homeless single adults—to about 2,600 now. So, I mean, they, I mean, the government is providing social housing um, of. You know, the quality or the um, security of it, we can all argue over. Um, They will say that they need more time to do more. Um, The targets, many would argue, were already pretty low. It doesn't look like they're going to meet them and the figures are still going up. And as we know, rents are rising exponentially all the time. Um, And I mean, it does seem to still be a situation that is quite out of control
1: the government I mean we've seen Owen Murphy although to be fair we've seen him less um, over the last year mm. I think than we saw him in the first couple of years of his position in the job you know he make these commitments fails to, ma- fails to meet them tries to work around with the figures a bit it doesn't seem like they have a handle on this thing
3: no, I mean it doesn't seem I mean they will argue obviously that they're, you know they're working harder than ever before that you know the, the social housing provisions stopped under Fall and that um, and that they are at least ramping it back up again
1: and that some of these things take a long time to and get they up do and take
3: a, and they do take a long time but I suppose you know what you have to wonder is the, the, the Huge reliance that they are putting on the private rental sector to the, the private sector in general to kind of d- to address this, and you w- you would wonder why they aren't really ramping up the social housing provision more. You know, r- really ramping it up, and that the, the targets would be higher. You know, the targets would be more like sort of eighty thousand over the ter- lifetime of this program rather than just forty thousand. Um, that would begin to make a serious dent in the waiting lists. Um, would provide obviously a lot of um, construction. Jobs um, would provide the security of tenure that um, in the social housing that people are crying out for, and that they would have had say, sort of twenty years ago. You know, families um, would have been in the social rented sector and, ch- and just kind of getting on with their lives. You know, as whereas now we have all this trauma and devastation that's happening, and and it's bad politically for them. But there does seem to be a blind spot of some kind ideologically in terms of this um, being wedded to the private sector to address the problems and... I suppose you, there's a suspicion that there's a belief that if they were to intervene too heavily from, from a statutory point of view in building houses, that that would upset the market in some way and that would upset the banking sector, the the property-owning classes, the um, the construction sector. Um, and they haven't spelt that out, but that would be, I suppose, a suspicion that it's um, they are the people who vote for Inagail, after all. Kitty, thanks for coming in. Sure.
1: Now I'm joined by our education editor, Carl O'Brien. Carl, is education as significant a political issue in general elections in Ireland?
4: Well, the funny thing about education is, you know, despite the fact that um, education is crucial, you know, to fulfilling the potential of all of our children and fulfilling our national economic aspirations, it's not up there among the really big national political issues in the same way as health, or housing, the economy, and. I think there's there's probably a couple of reasons for that. You know, one is really that our education system actually performs pretty well internationally. You know, if you look at PISA rankings, we're, we're right up there among the best readers in the world and we're pretty good at maths and science. Um, you look at um, the teaching profession, you know, it's a profession which is still held in very high esteem, requires a lot of points to become a teacher. Um, so generally, I think that the, the education system is working quite well. We also have Ver- the highest third-level progression rates in Europe, the lowest school dropout rates. So, you know, we're, we're on the right track, broadly speaking. And
1: you're not, you don't get the kind of controversies here, at least you don't seem to, that you get in other countries about the type of education and the content of education.
4: Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of that is the fact that in other countries, particularly the UK, every administration that comes in wants to kind of recast the education system in its own image. So you have the Tories or uh, are, are Labour setting up Free schools or academy schools, as, as uh, depending on the administration, also tearing up the curriculum and saying, you know, like Michael Gove was saying, and let's saying let's prioritise British imperialism and its positive legacy. You don't really have that. It's kind of a hands off policy within Ireland among successive governments when it comes to education. So I think there are kind of two key reasons, maybe why they're not massive national issues. However, you know, notwithstanding that, education is a massive issue for co- different cohorts of people mm-hmm. around the country. So, for example, you know, if you are um, a family of a special needs child and you can't get an education place or you can't get therapy, you know, education is massive for you. If you are, you know, a third level lecturer in an in IOT, an institute of technology, which is struggling along with, with poor funding, it's a really big issue for you. If you're a your teacher uh, who's been hired on this the lower pay scale, education is obviously a big big voting issue and if you're a parent of a child who's stuck in a you know overcrowded class or a prefab and there's no sign of a permanent school coming you know education will become a political issue for you
1: but these you know? are serious though they are those are issues that affect people either just at a given relatively small window in their lives or a relatively small number of people. Yeah
4: and, and that's the thing with education isn't it? You know, it affects people at different life cycles and like with this it affects different cohorts uh, at different times but it's not uh, necessarily that big broad national question that can, is going to dominate political debates and that seems to be the case in this election and similarly in the last election education was barely mentioned in the
1: last uh, the election actually. So is it fair to say that when we look at the programme for government, which was released almost four years ago now, that it's, it's difficult actually to nail down uh, whether those objectives were achieved because they were a little bit woolly? Yeah, a
4: lot of them were, were, were quite woolly and, and they were picking up on things that were either already happening or else they were setting broad aspirational you know aims which you know you can always argue have they been met or have they not been met so for example you know one of one of the big things in um the the last manifesto was um uh, and was early years education and boosting early years education. That's probably where they performed best uh, 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 of anything. They they promised at the time that they would reduce pupil-teacher ratios in you know, junior infant and senior infant classes. That has happened. They said they'd deliver an extra free year of preschool. That did happen. And they trialed this new model of in-school therapy and, and counselling and providing additional psychologists. That all happened. So they can... You know, tick that box and say we delivered that. But in other areas, like for example, there was a big plan to tackle disadvantage, and they said we'll introduce a new uh, DESH or disadvantage schools strategy, which will broaden the level of support for schools and extend support even outside of the school calendar year into to, to summer courses and stuff like that. That didn't really happen. They produced a plan, but it didn't substantially change things. Similarly on uh, they promised the big promise was diversity in schools and creating more multi-denominational schools. Mm -hmm. The big plan was they would uh, provide was it 400 multi-denominational schools by the year 2030. And when you look at the figures in the ground we're really creeping along there. There's not a hope we're going to reach that figure uh, and it's Slowed down by because a whole that was a political program groups.
1: that was initiated by the, pri- by the previous government. Rory Quinn was minister for education, but they did commit to continuing that,
4: and they, and they have continued it. But you know, l- like in a lot of things in education, it runs up uh, against a lot of um, obstacles that are kind of unforeseen. And there you have issues like you know the church being reluctant to, to relinquish control of individual schools and communities themselves actually not wanting to to lose. The, the, the local traditional Catholic school, for example. So these things are, you know, it's like the rule in any manifesto. It's very easy to put these down on paper, but to actually deliver them a lot more difficult.
1: I think that seems to crop up a lot in relation to education is serious industrial relations issues. We've had a number of teachers' strikes. We've just had a strike by school secretaries who seem to be grossly underpaid, as far as far as I can see. And very often these issues are linked back to cuts that took place after the, you know, after the crash, and that 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 the cuts haven't been reinstated. Is that going to be an ongoing problem? Was that an ongoing problem yeah. over the last four years?
4: Um, it has. It's dominated, you know, um, industrial the industrial relations landscape with teachers, particularly the, these teachers' hiring after 2011 on lower pay scales. Now, uh, a lot of that gap has been made up, but not fully. And now in early February, we're going to have a strike by the Teachers Union of Ireland. And it's a one-day strike, and that will certainly put the issue back on, the, on the, the political and the electoral agenda. And I'm sure parties will be queuing up to say, you know, we will be the party that will finally end and get rid of the two-tier pay system. And uh, in, in reality, you know, all the parties are on the same page on that. It's just a matter of when do you do it. But that will certainly help put the issue on the agenda. Also, you're going to have um, quite a lot of preschool providers and staff um, having a march in the doll and effectively closing down their, their premises for, for, for a day, which has never happened. That's also going to happen in early February. And that's going to bring that issue of you know, the low pay of the childcare workers uh, to the fore as well. So, so industrial relations will, will feature for sure in this campaign.
1: And finally, I suppose, third level, there's this looming problem which doesn't seem to have been addressed. There seems to be a reluctance to address it. This government doesn't seem to have addressed it. I don't know exactly what it said in the programme for government, Mm. but it's still out there to be fixed, which is funding the the huge numbers of, as you said earlier, the huge numbers of of Irish young people who go to third level education.
4: Yeah, so the programme for government was kind of silent on this issue, you know, but it's a really big issue. It's an elephant in the room and third level. It's how are you going to fund uh, a third level education system in the context of a population bulge, which is moving its way through secondary school and will mean that within the next decade we'll have 30% more students in higher education. So it's a really big um, demographic challenge kind of coming down the tracks. So how are we going to fund this? At a time when you know, our top universities are sliding down international rankings, um, there's real concerns, particularly within institutes of technology about underfunding and outdated equipment and so on and this broader picture of, well, what level of ambitions do we actually have for higher education, you know? And this is going to be a question, I think, for all the parties. How are you going to fund the system? Are you going to have student loans? Are you going to have a completely free, publicly funded education system? Are you going to have some kind of hybrid of the two? And and parties have, uh, to a party, have all ruled out student loans because it's seen as politically toxic. So then the question is you know, well, how are you going to fund this? And nobody seems to have the answers as of yet.
1: And is it fair to say that this government over the last four years has kind of put its hand over its, ear, over its ears and just gone, well, this isn't right Yeah,
4: if, if there was a can, it kicked it spectacularly down the road, you know, so far out of sight that it's actually the can has landed in the European Commission offices who have now taken responsibility for looking at, you know, what funding options might be there for, for the Irish state. So it's completely off the political
1: agenda for now. Yeah. Carl, thanks very much for that. Now, for many people, the most significant element in any election on which people will decide their vote is the economy. I'm joined by Cliff Taylor, who's our economics guru in here. Cliff, what did the 2016 Programme for Government promise to do with the economy? There were four things, interestingly, kind of outlined in the Programme for
0: Government in big lights at the start. One of them was jobs, and the the promise was to create 200,000 new jobs in the government's term and office. Now, I do hate the term government's creating jobs. Sure. And, and I see it coming up again, this campaign, and I kind of cringe a bit, but I, I know I need to get over myself because it's a general election campaign. But yes, total employment did increase by 200,000
1: in this government's term and office. Whether they created them or not, or, sure. or contributed to the environment in which they were created, or however sure. you want to characterise it, that's a pretty good number in a country this size, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I mean, the economy has, the overall macro economy has performed... Really well in the last few years, and the extent of the recovery has taken everyone by surprise, uh, not least the government itself, I would expect. Um, so, you know, we have seen the budget come back into surplus, uh, we've seen a lot of resources created, the vast bulk of which has gone into extra spending, and yes, we've seen a lot of new jobs, good jobs in general.
1: Uh, they are, they're not low-paid jobs? Because no. you know, there's a lot of talk in, in, in other countries about when there is a recovery in sure. jobs that, that they're not actually as good as the jobs that were there previously.
0: Sure, in, in general, no, of, of course there are exceptions. But what we saw when the recovery started to kick in, first of all, we saw a pickup in in part-time employment and full-time employment was a little slow to, to take off. Then it started to increase very significantly. Uh, and then in the, early, the earlier years of this government's term, 2015, 2016, unemployment was still quite high so there wasn't much move on wages and earnings but that has started to come through in the last few years as well so in terms of the job
1: market it has performed remarkably so well. when we hear the concerns from people about a new kind of precarious employment which younger people coming into the yeah. workforce have you're not, are, do you see that in some
0: sectors for sure um so you know you look at the retail sector you look at the you know the the food delivery sector uh and and so in in some of those sectors, yes, we do face the same issues uh as as a lot of countries worldwide and there's no doubt that there's I suppose a lot of younger people probably face a bit of a blockage in the workplace because during the crisis, there was a lot of layoffs, people weren't promoted, so I guess in the middle level of many organizations, you know not least the public service itself mm. that, you know there's a blockage of of people who haven 't moved up and moved on. The flip side is there have been a lot of well-paid jobs created in in areas of the tech oh, okay. sector. Okay, so that's
1: a that, that's a good re- that's a good report on that. Yeah, that's absolutely. the first one of the four. Now the second one, which obviously gets a huge amount of attention, is that they were going to build houses. Yeah. That's what they promised in the program for government. How do they do? They promised uh,
0: to move towards building twenty-five thousand new houses a year by twenty twenty, and you know that. That may happen. Uh, th- we're still to get the final figures for last year. They're probably going to be twenty one, twenty two thousand. Uh, 22,000. There's always a bit of debate about what you count and what you don't count. Uh, but yeah, we could see 25,000. There was quite an intense count.
1: debate actually about how this is calculated. And there was a lot of criticism of how the government was calculating yeah, it in yeah. terms of uh, electricity connections, I think it was. Absolutely, yeah. But I,
0: I, in fairness, I think that has been kind of tied down now or is more accurate than it was. The problem really is that, that this... This issue was run away from the government. So that while in, from the viewpoint of 2016, 25,000 new houses a year looked like it's, it would be enough, the economy has grown so quickly in the meantime that it clearly now isn't enough. Uh, what, what would be enough, you know, depends on who you listen to. Some people say 30, some people 30, say 35. So when you say the government let it get away from them, how did that happen? The problem did run away from them. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the economy grew much more quickly than expected. But they seem to have struggled to develop a focus and to really get things moving in in some of the key areas so uh you would say for example that the idea to set up a land development agency which has now happened is 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 a good one uh and should happen and has a lot of potential but gosh it's been slow getting going slow getting hold of the land banks you know slow starting the build out it just seems that everything takes seems to take an awful long time mm-hmm. uh and particularly A particular issue that has emerged is the availability of apartments and rental properties in in Dublin City and the other city centres in the country. Uh, We seem to have a real issue in terms of the cost of building and the provision of those. Uh, The only way the sums seem to be adding up now is to sell to funds coming in from overseas. Some of them are probably appropriate people to have as landlords, um, you know, European pension funds, for example, and some of them probably aren't. Uh, the more aggressive kind of vulture fund people. Yeah. So, so I want
1: to, to take the, the, the final two, the next two elements together, because they're a kind of a yin and yang sure. a weighing scales thing. One was the, the programme for government uh, said that more would be spent on public services and the other one was that taxes would be cut. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Well, if you, if you want more spending, they've certainly delivered on that.
0: So yeah, I looked back at the figure and they were talking about spending 6.75 billion more on public services by 2021, and then was the case in 2016. Now, as things stand, by 2020, they've actually spent close to $11 billion more on public services. So how has that happened? Well, as we know, there's been a huge influx in additional corporation tax revenue, which nobody expected. And most of that money has been spent. Now, where has it been spent? It's been spent on increasing investment. It's been spent on increasing spending in the health service and on all the areas we know about.
1: Isn't it the case that uh, and the fiscal advisory council has been banging on about this again and again that it might be one thing to put to spend that money which is really most people think a kind of a windfall um, yeah. on capital investment, one-off capital investment that will you know, serve the country well in the future. It's another thing to put it into current spending that you're going to have to repeat year after year after year when you may not have this money.
0: Sure, absolutely. And, and I think the government is vulnerable to criticism, uh, particularly in what happened in the 2017-2018 period when there were these huge overruns in health which were basically paid for, uh, no matter what kind of spin the government tried to put on it by these additional corporation tax revenues. Now, things have been tightened up uh, in the last kind of year or so. And certainly if you were to look at the budget for this year, it's fair to say that there's been a more prudent approach and that the government used, the Minister of Finance used the threat of Brexit to clamp down on his spending mm-hmm. colleagues. And so while you would normally have seen tax cuts and bit much bigger spending increases and pension increases and welfare increases and all those kind of things before a general election, gosh, we've seen it. Many times before, you and I are old enough to remember many pre-election budgets. Yeah. We haven't seen a pre-election budget this time, so I think the government's a bit vulnerable on the spending record. Mid-early time in its office did tighten up late, you know, towards the
1: end of its term. And I mean, what about tax cuts then? Because there was, you know, Fine Gael has, has always been, you know, committed to to cutting income yeah. tax to some extent. There were promises of that sort in its manifesto at the last election. There were some commitments in the programme for government. Uh, it seems that. They didn't really come to pass. Didn't happen. The promise in the programme for government was this famous two-to-one
0: split between spending and tax in terms of resources in the budget. And what's happened is the vast bulk has gone on extra spending. The tax cut promises haven't been met. If you look back at the programme for government, there was this lovely kind of fudgy phrase which was used, uh, which obviously <laughs> emerged as a compromise in, in, the, in the talks on forming the government, that the government would work with the doll uh, to try and achieve the continued phasing out of the USC. So, you know, did that mean it was going to be phased out, you know, five years or 10 years or what was going to happen? In fact, the USC remains Mm. much as it was uh, when this government came into office. Subsequently, in November 2018, the Taoiseach Leo Varagkar promised to increase the entry point to the higher rate of tax to €50,000 for a single person. It's about 35300 now. That would be a really big change. It would cost around €2.3 according to uh, Department of Finance estimates, uh, which is a, a really large amount of money. If you, if, if, you, if, you conti- if you consider that the latest Department of Finance estimates are that around 11 billion might be available on, on fairly optimistic estimates for all the tax cuts and spending increases over the next five years, t- 2.3 billion is a, mm-hmm. is a big figure.
1: It uh, would also be uh, a huge injection of cash into what's a booming economy, which is not... As far as I know, from my ignoramus position, good economics. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a problem
0: in the Irish income tax system. and the problem is that people pay the higher rate of tax at too low income levels. Uh, but the ideal way I guess to to address that is to is to move the tax burden to uh, and increase taxes in other areas. And use the revenue then to, 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 to address that particular issue. So that, as you say, you're not flushing a huge amount of extra cash into the economy. But what we've seen over the last few years are, are two things. One is that the pressure tends to mean on budget day or in the run up to the budget that all the extra cash goes on additional spending. Uh, the last couple least, of budgets. The lesson
1: we can take is that whatever the commitment of Fine Gael to, to tax cutting and whatever the merits of that. Yeah. It has to go into coalition. It has to work with other people, and it's faced with the pressures of actually being in yeah. power. I, and those pressures, I think, the, commi- the, the
0: commitments of, of of anybody to tax cuts, should, you know, needs to be needs to be taken with a bit of salt. And, and you know, the flip side of it is that I'd be very surprised if any if any party, with, with the possible exception of of some of the parties of the left who may call for more taxes on well-off people, I'd be very surprised if any party puts forward a, a big plan for raising additional revenue. You know, they're all running scared of saying anything about the the local property tax, which might imply any household is going to have to pay an extra 30 or 40 euro next year compared to this year. The water
1: charges have put tax increases off the agenda. Cliff, thanks very much for coming in. That's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan. Remember, you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast, as well as on all the usual platforms. Um, we're going to be back very soon with our election daily on Monday. So keep listening and talk to you soon.